Welcome back to Four of a Pine Podcast. This podcast is for all those out there just like us trying to figure out what's next in their careers. So join us and exciting guests as we discuss navigating our jobs, entrepreneurship, and all the ups and downs along the way. Hi, everyone. This is Grace, and I'm super excited to introduce today's guest. We are joined by Mijung Jang, or MJ for short. She's a managing director at Techstars, leading the MetLife Digital Accelerator Intratech program. MJ has been investing in startups through Jefferson Investors, which is a seed stage fund, but in previous life, before investing, she has been a startup founder, a hedge fund analyst, a corporate lawyer, a book author, and just an all-around superstar. She went to Harvard and got her bachelor's degree in computer science and economics, and then a few years later, she went to Yale for law school. She is someone I really look up to and see as a mentor, even though she may not even realize it. MJ, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Grace. It's my honor to be on your podcast, and thank you so much for that kind introduction. We are also joined today by one of my co-hosts, Michelle, who happens to be in the insurance industry, running the cyber portfolio of her firm nationally. I'll let her say hello. Thanks, Grace, and hi, everyone. Okay, so MJ, there's a lot to your story, and one episode is probably not sufficient to cover all the details. So what we're going to do is to briefly touch on each turn you made in your career to get to your current role as the managing director at Techstars, and then dive into the topic of raising venture capital from an investor's point of view. Last episode, we heard a few fundraising tips from a founder's perspective, so it would be really great to get yours as an investor and also to learn about kind of what happens in the background, so the process from that initial meeting with founder to actually closing a deal. So starting with your journey, everyone's path to becoming an investor is unique and yours is very interesting because you've clearly done quite a few things before your current role at Techstars and before starting Jefferson Investors. So let's start from the beginning of your professional career as a hedge fund analyst and then maybe walk us through what you did after that, what led you to go back to school and get your JD and why you left your job as a corporate lawyer. Yeah, sure. Happy to share that. I do know that my, if you look at my background, it kind of seems like a windy path, but uh, in my role now, it all comes together perfectly. So you just kind of never know how things will turn out. Mm -hmm. uh, so my hedge fund job that you mentioned, I actually got that job as a freshman in college. Now, as you mentioned, I was a computer science major and I saw this random posting I apply for it. I honestly did not even know what a hedge fund was, <laughs> uh, but they were looking for someone that knew how to code. And I was like, I know how to do that. I applied for this job and it was a really rigorous process. In fact, they had so many qualified candidates that they gave us an extra assignment to learn this new language and code this project, you know, gave us a coding assignment. I still remember completing that late at night in my dorm room at Harvard. But luckily, I got it. And it was a great experience. I still stay in touch with my boss from that hedge fund job. He's been a great mentor to me over the years. And I, you know, continue that job into the fall semester. My, my boss actually let us work as long as we wanted in terms of just working through college. But um, yeah, I went through my sophomore year. Got it. 
And then what led you back to get your law degree? What sort of, what was your thought process on that? Yeah. So unlike a lot of my other computer science friends and classmates who went on into tech, yes, I decided to take a different path and go to law school. That happened because in my sophomore to junior year, I became interested in women's rights issues. And then that's when I realized I didn't know anything about the law. And so I decided to apply to law school at that stage. So it was really because of this interest in women's rights. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed law school. I especially liked participating and getting involved in the clinics, such as a domestic violence clinic which obviously aligned with my interest in women's rights, right? Right. Uh, So I enjoyed that, uh, but I didn't quite know what came after law school, and which ended up being a corporate law job. I mean, the vast majority of law students go into corporate law for various reasons. And so that's where I ended up. I went to Cleary Gottlieb after graduating from Yale Law and was an associate there in the IP, transactional IP department. And then what happened after that? You kind of felt that corporate law just was not for you. I think you moved to South Korea and wrote a book. Oh, yes. I forgot to talk about the book. <laughs> I actually wrote that book when before I graduated college. Oh, okay, and, okay. Yeah. So I studied abroad in Korea at Seoul National University, and I wanted to help improve the education system in Korea. So I was inspired to write this book. Yeah, it was a random idea, literally, uh, one day that I had. And then I thought, huh, I think I should do this. So I went out and, and I wrote it in Korean, and I got it published and went on this book tour, uh, which was all an amazing experience. Wow, you did a lot before you even graduated college. Um, <laughs> probably more than I've done in my entire career, it feels like. <laughs> You're too kind. Basically, I think I followed my interests wherever it kind of led. And so I think that's been a consistent thing throughout my life as we kind of continue on the journey, as you'll see. So my law firm job, Grace, as you hinted at, it wasn't for me. In terms of working at Cleary Gottlieb, great law firm. Mm-hmm. I still have great friends uh, from that law firm that I still keep in touch with today. But what I realized was that just being a corporate lawyer wasn't for me. It didn't allow me to use my creativity in the way I wanted. And I really enjoyed creating or building things from scratch, you know, as kind of we talked about whether it's coding or writing a book, you know, things like that. And so I quit my law firm job after I would say about two and a half years and then founded my own startup. So I jumped right in. It's a big transition and very different, but it was completely the right decision. Can you talk about that experience? Like what was your biggest lesson that you took out of that experience? And how did starting your own company help you as an investor build the skills you need to be successful in the roles after that? Yeah, absolutely. So I built a company for about three years and we raised a round, an angel round. I built a team. We had about four people working on my team and helped thousands of customers and couples with their wedding planning. And after the three years, I had to make a very difficult decision to shut down my company. So I understand the ups and downs of entrepreneurship way too well. And as an investor in my role, 
role at Techstars, it helps me incredibly because I understand that, which means I have a ton of empathy for the founders, but it also helps me analyze the startups as an investor because、mm-hmm. I know what aspects can be really hard, and so I dig into that when I'm doing diligence and meeting with entrepreneurs. And last but not least, in my role as managing director, it also helps me bring in the right resources and mentors since I understand what kind of help they might need as a founder building their company. Got it. So after that, that's really when you started becoming involved with investing, first with Jefferson Investors,、um, but now you're at TechStars, which is a top accelerator not just in the U.S. but in the world. Can you talk about your current role leading the Intratech program? What an accelerator is, and maybe how it's different from the traditional venture capital firm, and what your day to day looks like. So, my roles. My role as a managing director of the MetLife Digital Accelerator, powered by TechStars, primarily can be described twofold. The first half of the year, I'm recruiting and selecting the. Ten companies that we accept into our program each year. So we run one program each year with ten startups. So that's what I'm mainly doing from January until about now.、Mm-hmm. And then in the second half of the year, we run the accelerator and we support the founders. So my role there is well, making sure that we have all the mentors lined up for the accelerator and all the workshops, right? That、um, the founders will attend and, and that can help them. So it's getting all the right people and help lined up for the program, and then in the program, help founders any way I can and every way I can to accelerate their business and help them. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with what an accelerator is, it's basically like a boot camp for startups, where we help startups achieve a ton in a short period of time. And at TechStars, we aim to help startups achieve in three months what would normally take them twelve to eight. Months of time, and so that's why it's called an accelerator because we're really accelerating your progress、mm-hmm. in program. Right. So there's still there's some funding component, right? It's just not as big, and the bigger components really is you know the mentorship, the network, potential access to customers, vendors, etc. That you're providing to all these startups. That's right, and and you bring up a good point there. So all the startups that get accepted into TechStars, they do have access and can get up to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars in funding, which is a boost of a twenty thousand dollar equity investment and a separate optional hundred thousand dollar convertible note. So all of our TechStars companies get that.、Mm-hmm. That said, that shouldn't be the main reason you do our program, and that's not the main value that、right. we add. The main value, as you were mentioning, Grace, is the help that we can add. So. Think of TechStars. We've been around for over ten years, and we've helped companies go from inspiration all the way to IPO and big acquisitions,、mm-hmm. like billion-dollar acquisitions, such as PillPack or IPO, like Sengrid. And so we've seen the whole journey, and we、mm-hmm. have this massive network of mentors and investors and corporates that are part of TechStars and looking at startups. So you get access to that. So what the way to think about it is that you're adding TechStars as a co-founder to your company that's going to help you through this whole journey. And our three-month program is just the starting point, really, of that help. So、mm-hmm. TechStars is for life. So you're part of the TechStars network forever as a founder, as long as you don't do anything, you know, <laughs> ludicrous. That gets you kicked out, of course. But <laughs>、right. uh, but TechStars is for life. And I just want to mention also really quick for our program in particular, 
which, as you said, Grace, in the beginning, we're focused on InsureTech. InsureTech is anything related to insurance. And that's really broad, which is awesome because it's a lot of fun to look at a lot of different types of companies that can affect and change the insurance industry. And our program is unique because it's a partnership between Techstars and MetLife. And so our founders get access to not only Techstars resource, resources and network, but also MetLife's resources and network as well, including the opportunity to pursue pilots and POCs with MetLife. Right. No, that's, that's extremely helpful. Thank you for providing all those details. So switching gears a little bit here, what I want to dive into now is the topic of raising venture capital. You know, there are a few ways that startup founders can raise money for their business. They can invest some of their own, raise capital from friends and family, or from angel investors who put simply are basically individuals with loads of cash and enjoy investing in entrepreneurial ventures. But, you know, you kind of get to a point where your company is maybe growing too fast or you need to fund, you need money to get to that next milestone. And none of of the methods I just listed is enough. How do you know when that point hits? Or or when should you start thinking about raising venture capital beyond bootstrapping it with your savings or getting funding from family and friends? Great question. And it's one of those questions that there is probably no one right answer. And so it makes Mm -hmm. it that much more difficult as a founder to decide what to do, right? And, you know, part of it, I'll say, first of all, just kind of stepping back, part of it depends on the founders and the CEO in particular. I mean, if, if you raise VC money, you are giving up control. Mm-hmm. And so as, a, as the founders, you have to decide, are you ready to give up that control, right? right? And you need to scale as quickly as possible and get as big as possible if you take VC money, because that's what VCs are looking for. Right. So you, you need to realize that as a founder and decide whether that kind of funding and that trajectory makes sense for you. Because even if you're growing really quickly and you need that money, you need money, right? right. Like you need money, but if you don't want to take that path, then maybe VC money isn't the path right. that you want to go. So I guess that's the first thing just to keep in mind. Now, if you know that you need or want to raise VC money, like you know that's the path that you want to go, then you should do it honestly whenever you can raise. So raise yeah. when you have enough hype around your company, and that can mean different things for different founders. So for example, if you're a serial entrepreneur or you have an amazing background uh, that VCs get excited about, then you can raise around the hype of building your company without even having built anything yet, right? right. And you see that. Yep. Really early stage founders that just have something on paper and they raise millions of dollars yep. and they've, they've raised it and now they have that cash to use it when they need it. Um, or it can mean when you launched and you have great traction. Now, when you launch, you don't have great traction. So, mm-hmm. right. But if you do, you should raise around that height. Um, so I think those are kind of the that, that founders should think. So just taking a step back, I am a newbie when it comes to this particular topic. So I'm going to ask some basic questions, which maybe some of our audience have as well. How is the seed round different from other rounds besides being the first one? Is it the hardest? Well, the first round can be easy or hard depending on the company or the the founders, right? So, you know, what's interesting about all this nomenclature, it changes and seed round. So actually these days, some of the founders are raising pre-seed rounds before right. even a seed round, which is a yeah. smaller round. 
Um, so your initial round is often without much traction at all, right? So it's before often you have product market fit, or maybe even before you even have a product, but often with very little progress. It's based on a lot of promise, and mm -hmm. so so raising that round is different from let's say when you raise a future round when you've launched something and the focus can be more around the actual numbers and progress that you've made and what steps you're going to take to ch to change that in your initial round it's all a hypothesis right so you're selling that hypothesis and dream to the investors that you're talking to um so if i were a founder a first-time entrepreneur and i have a limited investor network what are my options how do i reach investors do i just google vc firms and cold call them about my pitch like what's what would you advise first-time entrepreneurs i would say two things going online and doing your research and second expanding your network and working your network so i'll talk about those in more detail First thing is to go online. And I don't mean do cold outreach, but what I do mean is go online and find investors that you want to target and come up with your target list of investors, whether that's VCs or angel investors. And then once you've done that research, you can start networking and ask your network for introductions. So one easy way to do this is by looking on LinkedIn and seeing who your mutual contacts are with the people that you want to reach, right? Mm -hmm. This is something I do all the time, even now as, as a managing director, when there's a certain mentor I want to reach, I'll look that mentor up online and see who I know that knows that person and ask them uh, if they can make that intro. So you should do that as a founder. Now, Michelle, as you mentioned, if you're a first time founder and you have a very limited investor network, you're going to just start having to do a lot of calls and meetings to grow that network a bit, because I can understand how in the beginning you might not have a lot of mutual contacts, right? That can introduce mm -hmm. you, but you might be surprised, right? So that's where I would start though. Start with that target list, see who can introduce you and start growing that network that way. And you can also share that target list of investors with your current network to see who knows who. So if you can't figure it out on LinkedIn, for example, or even if you do that step, share that Google sheet with your network and, and you can create a column where your network can write down, hey, I know this person, I know this person, I can help make an intro. The thing that makes that step also helpful is that for you as a founder is that it helps your the people that you're asking in your network to see what kind of investors you're interested in. So that gives helps them kind of brainstorm and think about who else they could introduce you to. So the lesson there is, you know, make it really easy for that other person that wants to help you. And I get emails all the time from people who ask me for intros, but the more specific it is, the easier it is for me to help that person. So mm -hmm. keep that in mind. So I just did that really quickly while you were mentioning LinkedIn. <laughs> I looked you up on LinkedIn and besides Grace, we had so many other connections. So there you go. Um, I could have used that as uh, a warm connection. That's right. Exactly. That's really great advice, MJ. And this is sort of a backstory. I actually got to work with and learn from MJ while I was in business school. And how we met initially was at this VC investment competition I participated in with a few other students from Warm. And it's basically a competition with actual entrepreneurs pitching their ideas. So that was kind of my first exposure to real entrepreneurs pitching their businesses. And we 
basically had to act as VCs and then the real VCs who are the judges judged us based on how well we did their job. Anyway, so MJ was one of the judges. I came up to her, introduced myself, kept in contact with her and it was one of the best decisions of my life. That's a little dramatic, but, <laughs> but it's true. Um, so I'm just so grateful that MJ lets me tag along at things like a screening committee meeting where I got to watch amazing founders pitch their startups. And this is after we've done, you know, preliminary screening and after initial interviews with the founders. Anyway, so I, I think I can easily come up with a hundred questions for a founder pitching his or her company to me. But most initial meetings are fairly short, right, MJ? And you don't really have time to ask all your, all your questions. So what would you say are your top questions that you always make sure you ask founders during that initial meeting, particularly companies and founders you've never invested in before. So you don't really know much about them. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, just to give you an example, for our Techstars application process, the initial meetings that I have with the founders through that process is 15 minute calls. Yeah. So it can be very <laughs> um, I actually have a list of questions that I ask on every 15 minute call but I will share some of my top ones that I think are really important. So the first one I'll emphasize is that I ask, who do you see as your biggest competitor? And that's really because I want to see if the founder understands the space and the market they're in and they've done research mm -hmm. on their competitors. When I ask that question, it doesn't mean that I haven't done research, but I may or may not have, right? In any case, it's more important that you as the founder, that you know your market. So I asked that question. The closely related to that, I also ask, well, those are your competitors. What is your unfair advantage? It is fine if it's crowded, but I want to understand what your differentiation is. And this question I love because it really helps me understand how the entrepreneur is thinking about their company and the value that they provide that's different from their competitors. And then the third one that I'll mention is that I ask, what is your top priority right now? And I ask this question because I found that top entrepreneurs and founders are really good at prioritizing. As a founder, you have so many things to do on any given day mm -hmm. and you can't do all of them. It's just not humanly possible. We all only have 24 hours every day. So if you're able to prioritize really well, that is a really important skill. So those are three examples of the top questions that I ask in my 15 minute calls. And of those questions and other questions that may come up during presentations, what do you find founders generally struggle with and how can they better uh, prepare themselves to present at their best? They often struggle with those last two that I mentioned, the unfair advantage or differentiation question. I rarely get a good answer. Uh, and then prioritizing, surprisingly, I, a founder struggle with that. So I would say really think about how you're prioritizing your time. And honestly, I think this is something everyone should do. I think about how I prioritize my time because there's so much to do, right? Yeah. And I want to be the best director for my company. So I really focus on my top priorities. And as a founder, you should think about that. And the differentiation. I mean, that is so key, right? If you're building a company, how are you differentiated? Yeah. So if I were to make you pick... Would you take a company with an amazing team with a good product or a company with a brilliant product, but the team is just okay, all else equal. So you've got a large addressable market for both. It, really the difference is one company has a better product 
but the other company has the better team. What's your take on that? All else equal, I would take the amazing team. At Techstars, we actually say we have six criteria for selection, and the first three are team, team, team. <laughs> and, <laughs> and also at Jefferson Investors, we very much focus on the founders and the team. And companies pivot all the time, especially kind of in the early stages, but sometimes mm-hmm. even after a significant amount of traction, the best entrepreneurs know when and how to pivot. So team, absolutely. Excellent. So I, I have another question that I just came up, um, and maybe this question fits better with the earlier line of thinking about funding and all that stuff, but can you walk us through a typical funding process from the initial meeting to close and signing a deal. What are investors or what are you thinking and doing in the background while I, as an entrepreneur, I'm like sitting on my hands, waiting to hear back from you after crossing your fingers, crossing my fingers and my toes. (laughs) Sure. Well, there isn't, I would say just one typical funding process. I mean, it can be all over the map. An investor could say yes to you in your first meeting with them, or it might take them six months to get back to you, right? And hopefully, usually uh, it's shorter than that, but it can be all over the map. So as a founder, I think you really have to be prepared for that, the the random nature or the fact that there isn't going to be one typical funding process and you have to be able to endure that process. Just because, for example, just because you got 10 no's from investors up until this point doesn't mean you'll get a no on the 11th meeting. You, know, you have to keep at it, but you have to be in that mindset, right? And so if you can't take all the no's um, too personally or get down about that because you have to be in that mindset of the next one could be a yes and you have to keep at it. And there is a process, right? It's usually looks something like you'll get a first meeting or call. And what you want to do as a founder is get to the next meeting because the investor, from the investor standpoint, they're thinking, what well, do I want to talk to this founder again? So that's what the investors think. So you have to get to that next meeting. And in each meeting, you want to get to that next step. So as a founder, in order to make it uh, the process perhaps less random or um, more orderly, or at least help your psychological state <laughs> to move things forward, you, you can drive that process, right? So at the end of each meeting, you can ask the investor, investor what the next step is. And don't be afraid as a founder to ask the investor questions on what their process is. I think, honestly, founders don't ask enough questions in these meetings. I don't know why, but I think they're in the mindset of, hey, I need to pitch to this investor. And so I'm just going to pitch, pitch, pitch. But as a founder, it's a a mutual kind of match process at the end of the day. I mean, I know a lot doesn't feel that because you're asking for money and the other person can say no to you. But you should be diligencing that investor too. So, so ask questions, come with questions that you want to ask that investor, ask them about the funding process they use, when you can expect to hear back on the next step and put a date on it. That way you can follow up with that investor. Yeah, from the other perspective, from the insurance perspective, I've seen a lot of insure techs kind of come through and I'm just wondering your perspective on this. And I don't know if it's an insure tech thing or if this is just something that happens in the startup world, but 
every so often I'll see waves of the same type of startup company. Like I've seen 10 companies with the same idea and they're approaching it very similarly. It's probably just more of a who will get to market first. But I've seen like multiple of those cycles. Is that characteristic of insure tech or is that characteristic of just the startup culture in general? Someone comes up with a great idea and they're like, oh, like let's all jump on that bandwagon. Yeah, I don't think it's characteristic of insure tech at all. I've seen that in many different mm-hmm. markets um, and verticals. For example, you know, after Uber got big, saw a lot of different types of Uber versions. And you can say the same thing for a lot of different things. But yes, that happens. There's cycles in these different markets and verticals where things get popular and you see a bunch of new startups being formed that look pretty much exactly the same. And with, like you said, with InsureTech too, I've seen that as well. Which probably going back to your point earlier about the importance of teams, now this is it's even more pronounced right because if you have very similar ideas or similar products you're, of course you're going to want a team that can take that idea from an idea to an actual business exactly so even at techstars you know for our programs and when i'm looking at the insure tech space i won't cut out a startup just because i've seen nine other startups that are very similar right i'll mm-hmm. still talk to that entrepreneur because the team is important Yeah. So I know we're almost out of time here, MJ. We learned so much from you today from things to consider when deciding whether it's time to raise venture capital to how to approach finding potential investors to preparing for some of the most important questions you'll face on your initial investors meeting. We walked through each turn you made throughout your career, but I'd like us to close out with how you landed your current role as a managing director at Techstars, which is an incredible achievement. I think it's truly inspiring, and I'm sure our listeners would want to hear that story. Yeah, absolutely happy to share that story. It's a story about really initiative, good timing, and a lot of luck. So what happened was, and when I was investing uh, at Jefferson Investors, I became interested in insurance and insure tech. And then I noticed that Techstars did not have an InsureTech accelerator. And so I reached out to Techstars and pitched them on this idea of having and building an InsureTech accelerator. And I also told them that they should make me the managing director of that program. (laughs) And uh, luckily, they said yes to both. In addition to that, I met with a lot of different corporates when uh, to try to build this program with Techstars. And luckily, I met with MetLife as well. And MetLife had been talking to Techstars for some time. And so MetLife and I, when we met, we really hit it off. And they decided to sign with Techstars. And they requested me to be the managing director of their program. So everything aligned. And I think the key thing to take away here is to take the initiative when you have an idea and go for it and invite yourself, right? Techstars didn't reach out to me. I reached out to Techstars Mm -hmm. and I told them what I wanted to build. And I specifically remember the COO of Techstars, when I had the initial conversation with her, she asked me, Jenny Lawton, she said, well, what role would you like in this program? And I said, I would like to be the managing director of this program. And And that's what started it. Yeah. So go for it. That's a great story and really great lesson for everyone. Just take the initiative and go for it. The worst thing that can happen is they say no, but on the flip side, 
you can end up with MJ's story if they say yes, right? Well, thank you so much, MJ, for joining us today for sharing that story and wealth of knowledge and expertise. For those who'd like to get in touch with you, maybe particularly in sure tech startups who want to pitch their ideas, what would be the best way? The best way would be Twitter, and it's my full name, Mija Gang. I don't know if you can add that somewhere in the podcast, but yep. that's the best way to reach out. Yeah, we'll definitely add a link on our episode notes, as we always do. And so, for those of you who are insure tech startup founders、um, or thinking about starting up an insure tech company, definitely check those notes out. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us at fourofakindpodcast@gmail.com. That's four spelled out. You can also engage with us on Instagram. Our handle is at fourofakindpodcast and four spelled out f o u r. And don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or Podcast. Or Stitcher. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to our guest Mijong Zhang, my co-host Michelle, and to all of you for tuning in. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye. Bye.